Chapter Number Fourteen of Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rowan Puttigal. Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H. C. Adams. Chapter Fourteen. A long interval had passed since the occurrence of the events recorded in the last chapter. It was now July, the depth of the southern winter. Although Zululand is on the border of the tropics, there is often at that season damp and chilly weather, which is extremely trying to Europeans. When our story reopens, George van der Hayden and Reggie were lying on some tiger-skin carosses under the shelter of a Cape wagon enjoying the warm beams of the sun, which in the forenoon had considerable power. The scene was very different from that surrounding Rourke's Drift, being extremely picturesque and beautiful. A rich undulating plain was spread out before them, terminating in woody heights. The green surface was varied by patches of mimosa scrub and groves of acacias and date palms. Under the hills to the right, which were mostly covered with thorns, the course of the noble Zulu River, the white Umfalosi, was distinctly to be traced, now lost between graceful masses of feathery foliage, now flashing out from behind its screen into the full sunlight. "'Do you know what that mound is yonder?' inquired Margetz, pointing to a vast green tumulus, conspicuous in the distance in the direction of the northeast. Has a battle been fought there, or what? That is King Panda's tomb, said van der Hayden. Setawayo's father, you know. He was interred there in a sitting attitude, as is the custom of the country. The meaning of it, I suppose, is to signify that he is still ruling the land, as they have a sort of superstitious belief that he does. They are very particular about their funeral ceremonies. They have an idea that the spirits of the dead will punish severely any omission of them. And they have an unpleasant custom of killing some hundreds of people to do honour to the dead, haven't they? inquired Reggie. Yes, they have, assented van der Hayden. But to do your English government justice, they would not allow that. One reason why I resolved to follow this out to the last is because I know Setawayo's barbarity has only been kept within any bounds by the power of the English. Were he to be able to defy that, the horrors of the past would be revived. Shall we pass Panda's tomb on our way to attack Ulundi tomorrow? asked Margetz. I am not sure that even now I know the exact position of the royal kraal. It is there, said van der Hayden, pointing with his hand. In the centre of those masses of the mimosa scrub, it is as much as fifteen or sixteen miles from here. If we were to march to attack it tomorrow, as you say, Margetz, and as is generally believed in the camp, it will be a long day's work over a country like this. I agree with you, said George, but nevertheless, the attempt will be made. In a very few days, perhaps in a single day, the opportunity will be lost to Lord Chelmsford of recovering the laurels he lost at Isantluana. Sir Garnet Wolseley has already arrived from England and may take the command over any day. I don't suppose we shall ever get very near Ulundi without having a brush with these black fellows, observed Margetz. They are about in great numbers, 
and will never allow the royal kraal to be taken if they can prevent it. Much had happened during the last few months of public interest as well as affecting the personal concerns of the characters of our story. In the first place, hostilities had altogether been broken off after the action at Rourke's Drift. Lord Chelmsford, overestimating perhaps the gravity of the situation, as he had before certainly underrated it, resolved not to recommence operations until he was in command of a force sufficient to bear down all resistance. He argued, and perhaps rightly, that after his experience at Isantluana, the native troops could not be relied upon in any action with the Zulus, and without them, the forces at his command were insufficient to face the vast multitude still under Setawayo's orders. Pearson had had to entrench himself at Ikowe, where he would be obliged to defend himself until troops sufficient for his relief could be got together. Colonel Wood was in like manner under the necessity of fortifying a camp on Kambula Hill, unable to advance, although the terror in which his name was held and his own extreme vigilance rendered any attack upon him too dangerous to be attempted. Lord Chelmsford's demands for powerful reinforcements were promptly granted. Two regiments of cavalry, five of infantry, two field batteries of artillery and a company of engineers were sent out in a large and powerful steam vessels, placing, with those already in Natal, not less than 22,000 men at his disposal. But notwithstanding all the exertions made, a long delay ensued, during which the prestige of England seemed to be continually on the wane, and the terror inspired by Setawayo continually on the increase. The general belief throughout Natal, it might be said throughout the whole of southern Africa, was that Setawayo, leaving a sufficient force to keep Wood and Pearson within their camps, were to lead, say, 30,000 of his braves into the colony, no resistance could be offered. The inhabitants would have to shut themselves up in the towns which had been fortified in anticipation of such a danger, leaving their villages, their farm and country houses, their cattle and their crops, an undisputed prey to their invaders. The anxiety was in great measure relieved when, early in April, the Battle of Gingolovo was fought and the relief of Ekowe effected. But the disaster in Tombi, occurring at nearly the same time, which proved only too plainly how completely the blacks were masters of the country, and not long afterwards the melancholy of the death of the Prince Imperial, saddened all hearts. The universal feeling throughout the country was that, if the luster of the British arms was to be vindicated, it must be by some brilliant achievement which would throw all previous disasters into the shade. All our friends, George and Reggie, and Hardy and van der Hayden, had been embarrassed by the untoward course of events. George had obtained leave of absence from camp duties. The mounted volunteers, indeed, had been reduced to a mere handful, and although he and Margetts and van der Hayden all intended to accompany the British forces to the end of the campaign, they had to wait until they were drafted into some other corps. Rivers and Margetts proceeded to Dykeman's Hollow, where they learned that Mr. Rogers was still detained in England by business connected with Cape politics. He had written, however, to George, of course, in ignorance of Umbellini's raid and the disastrous issue of the invasion of Zululand, and George proceeded to carry out his instructions as far as he was able. All the wagons and farm stock had been brought back and nearly all of the native servants had returned to their work. George commenced his duties as a Sunday school teacher, 
and although he felt somewhat strange and awkward in the discharge of them, he was not on the whole dissatisfied. His house was convenient enough, though curiously different in many respects from an English house. There was room enough for Reggie to be lodged in it also, and George took upon himself to engage him as an assistant at the farm until he could hear from Mr. Rogers, to whom he had written on the subject. The two young men had agreed that although the present delay was extremely inconvenient to them, Reggie being anxious to find some settled work and George to set out in search of his mother, their honour was pledged to accompany the British troops in accomplishing the overthrow of Setawayu, and they must persevere. George had written to his mother, and a trader going up the country had promised to deliver his letter, but the weeks and months went by, and no reply was received, and he could not but be aware how slight the likelihood was that his letter had reached its destination. The delay was equally embarrassing to Henrik Jander Hayden. He was not only weary of the enforced inactivity and anxious to set in order his new home, but his relations with his sister distressed him. He and Unchen had moved to Newcastle, to which town such of his goods and possessions, as had escaped destruction at the hands of Umbellini, had been conveyed. There he had found a tolerably comfortable abode, and there was nothing to employ his time, and inaction was particularly trying to him. If he had not felt himself bound by the vow he had made not to lay down his arms until Setawayo had been deposed or slain, he would have set out for Zirust without further concerning himself with the war. But he was a man who, when he had once taken a determination, persisted in it till the last, and when day after day passed and the English troops, for reasons which it seemed impossible to understand, still delayed their march into Zululand, he only chafed and fretted and made his comments on the English commander-in-chief in terms which were perhaps just but not flattering. As for Anchen, the present period of inactivity was even more trying to her. She had mourned sincerely for the loss of Frank Moritz, of whose good qualities she had been fully sensible. But along with this there was the sense of relief, for which she reproached herself perhaps too severely. She had never been in love with him, in the real sense of that expression, and as time went on the conviction stole upon her that she was falling in love, if she had not already done so, with someone else. The scenes during the wreck had brought rivers before her in a very striking light, and she could not but be sensible, though nothing could be more respectful and reserved than his demeanour of his devotion to herself. She saw that it was her brother's opposition alone which prevented his coming forward, and she rebelled against her brother's prejudices as unreasonable and even ungrateful. The mutual embarrassment that had for some time been felt increased during her residence at Newcastle. It was the nearest town of any size to Dykeman's Hollow, and George, who had temporarily assumed the management of Mr. Rogers' property, had continual occasions of riding in thither on matters of business. Sometimes they met in the street and exchanged greetings, and some conversation passed. Sometimes it was the brother he encountered, and van der Hayden was always cordial and courteous, though he never spoke of his sister or invited Rivers to his house. Considering that George must necessarily need refreshment after his long ride and the hospitable habits of the Dutch, Anchen could not but feel that this was ungracious and marked. Once or twice she tried to express this to him, but stammered and hesitated so much over it that she was obliged to desist. 
If van der Hayden had known much of feminine nature, he would have been aware that if he wished to check the growth of an attachment on his sister's part for Rivers, he was taking the most likely means possible of defeating his object. At last, one day, about the middle of June, Henrik encountered his friend in the street of Newcastle with an expression on his face which had long been absent from it. We are summoned to headquarters, he said. At last, the march to Ulundi is to begin immediately. We are to set off tomorrow. We are to advance to Lundberg, where a junction will be effected with Sir Evelyn Wood, and then the whole army will proceed to Lundi for what will be, I trust, the final struggle. On the following morning, accordingly, the three adventurers set forth, and on reaching Lord Chelmsford's quarters, found Hardy already there. The three Balins and Matamo remained at Horner's Kraal, although the farmer adhered to the promise he had given of lending them Matamo for their expedition across the Transvaal. In a few days more, the march began. George was interested and almost amused at noticing the extreme caution which was now observed in securing the troops against the attacks of the enemy. Whenever any spot was approached where the ledge of rocks or a wooden hillside might afford protection to an assailing force, scouts were always sent forward to make the most careful examination of it. Immediately after a halt, the camps were always strongly fortified and even surrounded by lines of galvanized wire, which the soldiers humorously called setawayo catchers. The heliograph, too, was invariably set up, by which messages in case of emergency could be dispatched, the change from reckless indifference to danger and unbounded contempt for the enemy to the most extreme and jealous caution was curious to notice. On the 3rd of July, as the reader was heard, the English force had approached so near to Olundi that an action was evidently imminent. The broad open plain which extends between Nodwengu and Ulundi seemed to have been chosen by mutual consent to determine what might be called the decisive encounter between civilization and barbarism. On that day, following the conversation between George and his friends, the English army formed in square and marched on the royal kraal. It was an unusual order for a march, but one which rendered a surprise impossible. The infantry formed all four sides of a square. The cavalry, mounted infantry and volunteers protected the front and flanks. The Basutus covered the rear. The cannon were placed at the angles, the ammunition and wagons in the centre. The march proceeded past the green tomb of King Panda already mentioned, steadily moving onwards towards Ulundi. Presently there was visible in the distance a vast array of oval-shaped shields, above which rose multitudes of feathered headdresses and the blades of glittering assegais, where the interminable host of Setawayo's warriors were advancing to commence the battle. The order was now given to halt. The ranks were formed in close order, four deep, the two in front kneeling as though to repel a charge of cavalry, and the two behind firing steadily over their heads. They mean it, exclaimed George to Reggie, as they sat side by side on their horses, watching the movements of the enemy. Gingalovo hasn't frightened them after all. No, said Hardy, who was next to George on his other side. I don't expect that any of these fellows were there, and it isn't an easy matter to cow them at any time. And look what multitudes of them there are, said Reggie. The whole plain seems full of them. They outnumber us four or five to one, I should say. Quite, assented Hardy, but if there were forty to one, it would not affect the result. If our fellows stand firm, it is impossible for them to approach the line of fire. They don't think so, though, 
observed Reggie. Here they come. As he spoke, the dark columns were seen moving forward, the men advancing with a kind of springing step, holding their shields before them on their left arms. After firing their carbines, they did not stop to reload, but pressed forward, brandishing their assegais in their right hands. A stern silence was observed in the British line until they were within rifle fire. Then the word was given and the fusillade began. The effect was terrific. The Gatling guns opened whole lanes in the advancing masses, and the leaden storm from the rifles struck down hundreds at every discharge. The ground was almost instantly heaped with bodies, so that the rearward file had to struggle over the piles of the slain. They continued, however, to press forward with fierce shouts and undaunted valour to inevitable death, though the fire only grew heavier as they struggled nearer to it. "'What splendid fellows!' said George admiringly. "'It really seems a shame to massacre them after this fashion, though no doubt there is no help for it.' "'They are stopping now, though,' said Hardy. "'They have advanced nearer than any other troops in the world would, I think, have done, but they are wavering and recoiling now. "'Ha! There is the signal to charge,' he added, as the bugle sounded. "'Now for it, then, George!' As he spoke, the cavalry darted forth from either flank, and swept down with the force of a hurricane on the disorganized and disheartened masses. In an instant the whole body of Zulus broke and fled in all directions, the horsemen with their sabres plunging among them and mercilessly hewing them down. Even in this extremity the gallant blacks turned again and again on their pursuers, pouring in desultory volleys or hurling assegais, which cost the conquerors many a life. Nor did resistance entirely cease till tracts of broken country were reached, where it was impossible for the cavalry to follow farther. Then they halted, recalled the stragglers, and slowly returned over the scene of the long encounter, the whole route being heaped with the dead and dying with a sad and terrible sameness. "'Well, Thunder Hayden,' said Rivers, as they lay on their carosses that evening, too much exhausted with their day's work to raise their heads from their pillows, our vows are fulfilled at last. Setaweo is completely crushed. His army is destroyed or too widely scattered to be gathered together again. He will never fight another battle nor summon another council. Now at last we may think of our long-delayed journey to Zirust. I do not know what the terms of your vow were, Rivers, answered the Dutchman, but mine remains to be fulfilled. Setaweo is neither slain nor captive yet. I grant his power is to all appearance broken, but he is a brave and resolute savage, and his people are still devoutly attached to him. So long as he is alive and at liberty, my vow is not accomplished. You, of course, can do as you will, but I am not free to depart at present. George looked disappointed. My own resolve, he said, no doubt was to see an end of Setaweo before I left, and I should not like to set out without you. Possibly, George may have added inwardly, or without Anchon. But if this was his thought, he kept it to himself. I suppose, he added a moment afterwards, Hardy also will wait to accompany you. No doubt, assented the Dutchman. And besides, Rivers, I ought to tell you that, anxious as I am to set out, I should not like to do so at this season of the year. Even here the weather is extremely trying, trying even to those who have lived as long in the country as I have. 
but in the camp here we have sufficiency of food and firing and shelter as well as medical attendance close at hand if we should want it. None of these things are to be had with any certainty in the Transvaal. It would be unwise for you and Mr. Margetts at all events to make the attempt for five or six weeks to come. One of the things that vexed me most last April when that extraordinary delay occurred was that I knew that we could not then set out until the beginning of September, but by that time I have no doubt Setoweo will have been killed or be a prisoner in our hands. I suppose you are right, said George reluctantly. Well, if I must remain, I shall try to make part of the force that is sent to catch him. I only hope there will not be as long a delay about this part of the affair as there was about the march to Olundi. The feeling expressed by George was one generally entertained throughout the camp, but nevertheless the search after the Zulu king seemed to partake of the same inactivity which had prevailed from the first. Rumours were brought in that Setaweo, who had refused all the offers made him in deep distrust, no doubt of the good faith of the English in making them, had fled into the recesses of a wild primeval forest on the borders of the Black Umfalosi, known as Ngome country. Here it was almost impossible to pursue him. The scenery was wild, broken, covered with rock and wood, presenting innumerable fastnesses, which could only be approached with the utmost caution and great numbers of Zulus were still lurking in the neighbourhood, quite capable of exterminating any party which they might surprise unawares. A cordon was drawn around this district, and the circle gradually contracted, but for a long time, notwithstanding the rewards offered, and the fact that numbers of Setaweo's bitterest enemies were on his trail, no certain intelligence of his lurking place could be obtained. At last, on the 26th of August, Information came in which indicated exactly where the fugitive was to be found. Major Martyr of the Dragoon Guards was ordered to take a squadron of his men, together with some of the native horse and a few mounted infantry, to effect the capture. With some difficulty, Rivers and Van der Hayden were included among the latter. On the morning of the 27th they set out, the mounted infantry acting as scouts, and the others following, they made their way through wild and picturesque scenes where the foot of civilization seemed never to have trodden. Here and there the rude pathway was interrupted by mountain streams leaping over rocky heights. The horsemen passed under groups of date palms, mimosas and euphorbias, the giant trailers dropping from branch and crag in tropical luxuriance around them. Overhead jays and parrots exhibiting the brightest hues screamed and croaked, the troops of monkeys chattered. Every now and then a watchful eye could see venomous snakes creeping off through the brushwood or making their way along the boughs of trees, scared by the sight of scarlet tunics or the tramping of horses' hooves. It was a strange, bewildering journey. At length they reached a mountain height from which, at the distance of a mile or two at the most, a small kraal was to be seen, in which, as the spies confidently assured Major Martyr, the royal fugitive had taken refuge. It was a difficult point to approach. The wooded valley in which it was situated lay at a great depth, more than a thousand feet. It might be twice that distance below, and if the party should be seen before they were close to the kraal, escape would be possible into a tangled wilderness where pursuit would be extremely difficult. The Major made his arrangements accordingly. 
he caused the dragoons to lay aside their scabbards and all the rest of their accoutrements which would make a rattling noise as they advanced. Then he sent some of the native contingent and volunteers among whom George and van der Hayden were included to creep down the mountainside ke- keeping carefully out of sight and making no noise until they reached the edge of the stream on the banks of which the kraal stood. Arrived there they were to co- conceal themselves among the dense bushes which fringed the stream until the major himself with his dragoons were seen coming up the opposite side. Then they were to cross the stream, which a good leap would be sufficient to surmount, and surround the kraal. Marta himself led his dragoon guards to a point three miles distant, where the slope of the hills was sufficiently easy to allow of their riding down. George and his companions accomplished the difficult descent successfully, clinging to the baboon ropes, as the species of long trailers called, and swarming down the date palms all in profound silence. The chief danger arose from the incessant screaming of the monkeys, which rose in such a chorus that the adventurers were afraid that the attention of the occupants of the kraal might be attracted by it. But Setaweo and his followers either felt confident in the security of the place of their retreat or were overwearied by their recent exertions. George and his companions succeeded in reaching the bank of the stream unobserved, they could see a Zulu soldier or two moving about, and now and then a woman coming out and going back into the kraal, but all was listless and dispirited. The alert and watchful activity of the Zulus seemed completely to have deserted them. Presently the sound of hoofs was heard, and the dragoons, sabre in hand, came galloping up. At the same moment George and his comrades rushed from the concealment and cleared the stream at a bound. The Zulus offered no resistance. It might be that they felt that the struggle would be hopeless, but it seemed as though all heart and hope had deserted them. They raised a feeble cry. The white soldiers are here. My father, you are their prisoner. There was a moment's pause. Then the door opened and the huge and sinewy figure of Setaweo came forth. He looked worn and overwearied, but he still retained something of his native dignity. George and van der Hayden stepped up on either side as if to arrest him, but he waved them off. Lay no hands on me, he said, white men. I am king. I surrender not to you, but only to your chief. End of chapter 14